Good day, church. It is good to open the word with you uh, yet again through our technological uh, means. And we are still looking forward to the day when we can gather together uh, and see each other face to face and spend time in each other's company. But until then, uh, we press on with patience. The theme of this message is patience. And so it is quite fitting for the days that we face uh, even now. So I invite you to pray with me as we begin to look at this section of James chapter 5. So pray, take a moment and pray to our Father. Father, thank you for the technology that you've provided that enables us to remain connected with each other through these difficult days. We're grateful for the ways that you've cared for our body. We pray that as we open your word together in this message, uh, you would speak to us. We pray that you'd enable us to hear your voice. And we ask that you would stir our hearts uh, for a, a deep longing for the return of your son. That's where our attention needs to be fixed. Our hope needs to be set. And so we pray that as we open this passage of scripture, you would deepen our longing for the return of our Lord. We want to see him face to face even more than we want to see each other face to face. And so would you deepen that longing in our hearts and may the promise of his return shape the way that we live day by day. Thank you for your word and the ways that you come to us, that you speak to us and that you comfort us through it and encourage us in it. We pray that you would do those things for us even now in Jesus name. Amen. As we begin to uh, look at this section of James chapter 5, we're coming near the end of the book of James. And uh, this section is very much about hope uh, and patiently waiting. Uh, that's the theme of this passage, uh, mostly a call for us to be patient in the midst of waiting and waiting particularly for the Lord's return. I don't know how many of you have noticed, um, but typically when I send an email, uh, I close my email with a final greeting um, that is not a throwaway greeting for me. I close most of my emails uh, to people, particularly to believers, but to people in general with the words looking forward. That's how I sign most of my emails, looking forward. And the reason that I've come to do that uh, is because I've come to see very clearly from the scriptures that our faith has a forward orientation. Our faith uh, is intended to have a forward momentum. That is to say, trusting in Jesus is in part trusting him for his promises, for the promises that God has made in the scriptures, promises that have not yet found their full and final fulfillment. And so Christians are to be a people of hope that our faith is characterized in trusting God's promises. When we look at the Hebrews uh, 11 hall of faith, and we look at those examples from the Old Testament of people who trusted God, every single one of them were trusting him pretty much for a particular promise something that he had promised to them or to their descendants or to their people 
that had yet to be fulfilled. And the author of the Hebrews makes it really clear that the, the heart of faith it has a forward-looking element, a forward-looking aspect. And it's that, that aspect of our faith that I want to remind myself of every day. And so when I send an email even, signing it looking forward is not a throwaway thing for me. It is something that reminds me, and my hope is that it would remind those I write to that there, there's something coming in the future for us that is really glorious and really wonderful that we need to fix our attention on. And when we do that, when we put our faith in the God who promises future wonders for us, we find our day-to-day living shaped by that. Our actions today are shaped by our hope for tomorrow, hope for the future, hope for what God has promised to us. And that's where I want to turn our attention today uh, in this passage. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12 uh, very much has this forward-looking uh, movement to it when it calls us to patience. Patience in the here and now, waiting for something that's promised to us in the future. And so this aspect of patience needs to characterize our lives as Christians. To set the stage, just I just want to remind you of Pastor Ken's sermon from last Sunday briefly. As chapter 5 opened, he mentioned how there was a, a change of tone for James as he addresses rather harshly and directly uh, some non-believers. Now, as Pastor Ken explained, he's actually addressing us. He's actually addressing the believers in his audience with these words, but he's targeting, if you will, some non-believers who are either in the churches that James is writing to. And so these may be people who have attended their churches, who have been uh, caught up in their communities, but do not have a relationship with Jesus. Whether they believe they do or not, James is saying that these people who use their wealth in selfish ways and in ways that are harmful to other people, these folks do not know Jesus. And James addresses them with harsh warnings of the judgment to come. So he announces condemnation on them, condemnation that's coming in the future. But that message from verses 1 through 6 is very much targeted to the believers, to those many of whom would have been the victims of the oppression of the wealthy in their midst. And so James was very, was very much addressing the victims of these rich people who use their wealth in ways that that cause other people, poorer people who are in James's churches uh, to suffer in certain ways. And so James is writing and addressing the wealthy who've misused their wealth in such condemnable ways as a way of stirring up hope for those who have been their victims, hope for justice, a certainty that justice will become will come and will be settled that all things will be made right on judgment day but in verse 7 James turns and addresses directly those in his churches who may have been victims of these oppressive uh wealthy people whether they're outside the church or inside the church, they have uh, connected with the people in James's churches. And now in verse 7, James turns the corner, and he, we're going to see his tone change yet again. 
And for the rest of James chapter 5, for the rest of the letter, James's tone is very much coming alongside these believers, walking with them and encouraging them and building them up in some very practical ways for how they need to live out their faith, knowing that they're experiencing these trials, knowing that they're experiencing these sufferings, maybe particularly at the hands of these other people, these wealthy people. And so uh, James chapter 5, verse 7, turns a corner as well. I want to read these verses, verses 7 through 12, uh, in full, and then we'll walk through and open up the passage. Uh, Whether you've ever been the victim of oppression or persecution or abuse by those in power or those with wealth or not, there's a call here for all of us to be patient and to wait patiently for the Lord's arrival. That's where our hope, that's where our patience is ultimately to, to be directed. So let's see what James says. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, Until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. So these verses address to these brothers. He readdresses them this way with this affectionate term to remind them of his family connection with them. And he calls them here to patience. So first of all, in verse 7, he says, Be patient like the farmer. Be patient like the farmer. And so in verse 7, Be patient until the coming of the Lord. And so as he addresses these Christians who may very well be suffering under the oppression of the wealthy in their community, he calls them to wait, to be patient for the Lord's arrival. We'll talk more about that phrase, the coming of the Lord, as he mentions it again later in the passage, and we'll look more fully at what he's referring to exactly. But as Pastor Ken alluded to last week, he's definitely referring to the time when Jesus returns, when Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, it will be a day of judgment for those who remain in rebellion against him. It will be a day of condemnation and wrath for those who remain in rebellion against him. But for those who trust him, it is a day of salvation. It is a day of rejoicing. It is the day we should all be looking forward to and waiting for with patience. But he gives an example. He says, be patient like the farmer, like the farmer. 
And so bringing up this illustration of the farmer, he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. The fruit is precious to the farmer because this fruit, this crop, this harvest that the farmer waits for every year is his livelihood. It's what will enable him to keep living, to survive in this world. James is not describing a wealthy landowner. That's who he might have been talking to in the previous verses, but here he's talking about a farmer who is a poor farmer, a farmer who depends every single year on having a good crop for his family to survive. That's the situation that James is bringing up as an example here, that the farmer is patient for his crop and he's he waits until the, the crop, the, the fruit, receives the early and the late rains. Now, he's referring to the situation in the Middle East where the, 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 the early rains would be coming at the end of October and into the beginning of November. And these early rains are very important because they come right after the farmer has sown the seed in the ground, in his uh, garden, in his farm. He's just put out the seed, and so the early rains need to come so that the seed will germinate and begin the process of growing and producing a crop. If those rains are delayed or lessened, then many of those seeds will die without producing any fruit. And so he needs those early rains in particular. But then the late rains that are alluded to here are the rains that come in April, late April and early May around this time of the year. And it's those rains that come right before the harvest is supposed to arrive. And the, the seeds need, and the plants that will have grown need those final late rains in order for their crop to be full and healthy and matured. Now, in between that time, if you think about it, you're talking about between, between November and into May. That six-month period is full of lots of other things that need to be done. And so there are two aspects of uh, patiently waiting that James is bringing out with this analogy. First, he's saying that the farmer is dependent on God's faithfulness. He's dependent on these early rains and these late rains to come at the right time and in the right measure. And if you look in the Old Testament, as James surely would have had in mind, he's not just talking about everyday farming. He's talking about the reality of God's promises in the Old Testament, where God promised to Israel to provide the early rains and the late rains as a sign of his blessing on them, as a sign of his provision for them so that they could uh, continue living and thriving in the land that God had promised to them. God gave them a land Unlike Egypt, which is not watered by seasonal rains, but watered by the Nile River. But God gave them the land of Canaan, which has no major river source like that for the people to depend on for their farming and their agriculture. Instead, they're dependent on the rain coming down from heaven. And so they're very much dependent on God. And so James is calling us, calling his readers to trust in God's promises, to trust in God's faithfulness that he will come and he will set all things right. For those who have been oppressed, for those who have been victims of violence or abuse, God will make it right. He has set a day where he will make all things right. And so James is encouraging us to be patient and wait for God to settle the score, to wait for God to make all things right again. And we are dependent on his faithfulness to do that, that he will show up as he has promised to. 
And so we're dependent on God's faithfulness. A second way we're to be like the farmer is to be working hard in the meantime. And so like the farmer between November and May, he's not just kicking up his feet and kind of watching. He's not waiting passively for God to provide the rains. Instead, he's out there doing all the work of of cultivating the the crop that he has planted. He's out there hoeing the ground. He's out there maybe pouring on some kind of fertilizer. He's out there farming. Farming is hard work. It was hard work in the ancient world, and it's still hard work today, even with the technological advancements and the equipment that we have that they didn't. Farming is still really hard work for a successful, fruitful crop that some that a, that a family could live on. Is really hard work. And it's not just the patience that James is talking about is not just a passivity. It's not just a simple sitting back and watching what's going to happen. It's a very active thing that involves our hard work until Jesus returns. And so our waiting is not simply this passive, just watching things unfold. It's getting in the game and being involved. We're trusting in God's faithfulness to produce what's what's needed. But at the same time, we're taking our responsibility seriously all the while. That's the example of the farmer that's given to us here. Be patient like the farmer who works really hard and yet trusts God for the produce. That's the call here for us. This idea of patience, it's important to see uh, the distinction that James is going to make between patience and steadfastness, or patience and endurance. He uses these two words together in this passage, and they overlap in meaning, but they're not exactly the same. Patience has to do with the reality that what we're waiting for may take longer to get here than we might like. Patience is required because what we're expecting, what we're looking for, what we're hoping for might take longer than we expect. And so the word patience has to do with this time element. The issue of steadfastness, which we'll look at in just a little bit, or endurance, has to do with the reality that the the, the waiting that we're engaged in might be more difficult than we would like, might be harder. There might be stresses and pressures and suffering that comes in the midst of our waiting. It's not going to be relaxed and easy waiting necessarily. Steadfastness or endurance is required because we're going to have to bear up under the weight of some hard things along the way. And so that's the distinction that James is working with here. It's both the reality that it could be, it could take longer than you might like, and it could be harder than you might wish. That's the reality that we're looking at in this passage. In verses 8 and 9, he repeats the command to be patient, but he uses a different illustration and brings up a different reality that we need to deal with. He says, be patient without exasperation in verses 8 and 9. So he repeats the command, you also be patient. And then he adds another command, establish your hearts. Establish your hearts or strengthen your hearts. The Greek word that he uses here in this command, establish or strengthen, is the Greek word we get our English word steroids from. Some of you might remember from our ABF in Romans that Paul uses this word in Romans chapter 1 to talk about the same kind of thing. This strengthening is is about a solidifying. It's a 
I mean, we think about steroids, we think about pumping you up, getting you to be sturdier and stronger and more well-built. And that's the idea here is the call is, the command is, strengthen your hearts here, Christian. Strengthen your hearts. Well, how do you do that? We have to go to another passage of Scripture to kind of help us think through, well, how does that look? What does that mean? What What is it that we need that strengthens our hearts, that we are able to endure the trials and the suffering that we must go through as we wait for the final return of our Savior and our Lord? What does that look like? Well, Hebrews 13.9 tells us, the second part of Hebrews 13.9 says, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. By grace. It's God's grace that strengthens our hearts. And so we we experience God's grace. We receive God's grace. We come to a greater understanding and appreciation for God's grace by looking into the scriptures and seeing who God is and what he's done for us. God's grace is all about God's power at work for good in those who deserve only bad. That's you and me. Even these poor Christians who have been oppressed and who are truly victims can, before God can only say, I deserve your wrath, O Lord. And instead, he's offered grace. He's offered blessing. He's offered good because of the death of our Savior in our place. And so, The way that we strengthen our hearts as he commands us to do it. He says, James says, strengthen your hearts. How do we do that? Well, we tap into, we look for, and we receive the benefits of God's grace in our lives. And our hearts, our inner person, is strengthened, built up, so that we can endure the trials that God brings us into and brings us through. Be patient without exasperation. So we'll come to the exasperation piece of this in just a moment, but I want to talk for a few few minutes about this, uh, what he says here in verse uh, 8, the reason that we should be patient here. He gives a command and then a reason. Be patient. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Why should I do that? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is at hand. So I want to talk for a few minutes about the nearness of the Lord's arrival. The word for coming here is a Greek word that some of you may have heard or read before if you've studied end times prophecy or the return of Jesus, uh, or you've heard it preached about or or you read books about it. The Greek word is parousia, parousia. And it's a word that refers to a person's presence. And usually in the ancient world, it's used to refer to the arrival of a dignitary or a king in a particular place. And so when a king shows up to his home, to his kingdom, after winning a great battle, for example, the word parousia would be described, would be used to describe his arrival when he actually gets there. And so the word is referring to the arrival of our Lord, the arrival that we anticipate. And here he says, James says, it is at hand. It is near. Now, we think about nearness in different kinds of ways, and we really need to think a little bit about the Old Testament here because in the Old Testament prophets, the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, is announced as near at least eight times. 
You can see a list of these passages in your sermon notes. This day would be the day of the Lord's arrival on the earth to bring both judgment to his enemies and also salvation for his people. An additional 11 Old Testament passages announce Yahweh's coming. And almost all of them speak of him coming to bring both judgment to his enemies and also salvation for his people. These are also listed in your sermon notes. A further three Old Testament passages speak of the coming of a messianic figure. His coming would be for establishing his kingdom, his universal rule over all. Most Jewish people read these passages together as anticipating a singular final event where Yahweh their God and his human Messiah would come, would arrive to bring freedom to Israel and destruction to all their Gentile enemies. But Jesus read his Old Testament differently, and he taught his followers to recognize a more complex picture being drawn by these prophetic passages. The Messiah, the Son of Man of Daniel 7, has arrived to establish his kingdom. Jesus used the same language as James, as reflected in Mark 1.15, a summary of Jesus' preaching. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is the king and he was bringing the kingdom into reality during his ministry on earth. As he preached the gospel, and as sinful people responded with faith in his message, faith in him, and repentance from their lives of sinful rebellion against God, the kingdom was taking shape, gaining citizens. The kingdom had arrived because the king had arrived. The salvation promised in the prophets on the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, was beginning to be fulfilled. And as the prophets actually had announced, but many Jews had missed, the salvation was being extended to the Gentiles as well as Jews, to all who would respond with faith and repentance to the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. But where was the judgment and destruction of God's enemies? Well, this is where things begin to become very complicated. And yet at the same time, exactly as the Old Testament prophets had indicated, the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, the day of judgment had to be experienced by the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, the one who would endure the day of the Lord as a substitute for sinners so that God's enemies could become God's friends by trusting in him and his work. So Jesus would take the throne and establish his kingdom by walking the Via Dolorosa, the road of pain, experiencing in the place of sinners the wrath of God against sinners on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem. And so he did. And then to quote Hebrews 10, 12 and 13, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. So Jesus is waiting 
for the final judgment and destruction of all his enemies. Thus, Jesus and the New Testament writers recognize that the judgment aspect of the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, would have to have a unique and layered fulfillment. So now, we join our exalted king in waiting for the day of the Lord when those prophecies of final judgment will be carried out at last. What the Jewish people couldn't recognize on their own and still can't to this day without the illumination of the Holy Spirit is that there would be a second coming, another arrival of the Lord on the earth to execute final judgment and to bring final salvation for all those who trust the Lord. That is what James is pointing his readers to. It will be the arrival of God himself in the coming of Christ. He won't be riding a donkey when he comes again. Instead, he will be mounted upon a white war horse. He will raise his followers from the dead. He will transform those of his followers still living when he arrives, providing them with glorious bodies fit for the new creation and he will execute judgment against all those who remain in rebellion against him. James says that this event, this arrival, is near, at hand. In verse 9, he says that the judge is standing at the door, or more literally, standing at the gates, ready to enter at any moment. Picture Jesus, the Jesus of Revelation 19, verses 11 to 13 mounted on his white steed right outside the gates of the world. The magnificent white horse is pawing at the ground, eager for battle, neighing impatiently, ready to burst through the gates. That is what James would have us picture here. The nearness of the arrival of the judge is not to be measured according to our calendars or timetables. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 in response to those who question the nearness of the Lord's arrival, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter reminds them and us that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And then he adds, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter attributes what we might think of as the Lord's slowness, the Lord's delay, to the Lord's patience toward you. The Lord is expressing patience toward those in Peter's audience. That is, toward those in the church. He then elaborates the Lord's patience as not wishing that any should perish, by which he probably means not willing that any of you should perish. Peter recognizes that there are some of these scoffers and false teachers in the churches that he's already warned about in his letter, as well as some people who have deceived themselves into thinking they know Jesus, but really don't. This is just like James's audience. And so he wants to assure them that the Lord hasn't just given up on them. Instead, he's expressing patience toward them, 
so that none of them may ultimately perish in their unbelief, but that all of them might have more time to reach repentance. What we might perceive of as slowness or a delay, we should rather interpret as God's good purposes to build his church, save all who will come, and as motivation for all his children to live every day with a sense of eagerness, anticipation, and preparation for his arrival. James can speak of the nearness of the Lord's arrival, and he is writing the earliest scripture of the New Testament period. James is writing about 15 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and he can speak of Jesus' second coming as near, at hand, ready to burst through the gates at any moment. Well, over 2,000 years have passed. How much more should we live with anticipation for his arrival? Even before Jesus' death, he taught his disciples to live this way. We'll come back to that in just a bit. James has a warning for us to attend to in the meantime, a warning against irritability. A warning against irritability. That's verse 9. Do not grumble against one another brothers, so that you may not be judged. The warning is for us to not groan or sigh in frustration or exasperation or irritation at our at each other, at our brothers. And isn't that a temptation? We get frustrated so easily with our brothers, with our fellow Christians. We wish their lives were lining up more with what we think they ought to be and we get frustrated. We get exasperated when other people sin. We get exasperated with ourselves when we sin too. And we get frustrated and we get this sense of irritability that is caused by other people in the church. We're frustrated that they don't see things exactly like we do. And James says, be careful of that mindset. The warning here is that when we treat each other that way, when we view each other as obstacles or problems or difficulties to be managed instead of brothers and sisters to be loved, supported, and cared for, we are in danger of the condemnation of the judge when he arrives. This is a strong warning for us Christians to examine ourselves as so often in James and the other parts of of the New Testament. The criteria, the the, the, the thing that we ought to look for to determine or to corroborate the truth of our profession of faith is how we treat each other, how we view each other as brothers and sisters. Are we treating each other like family, like brothers and sisters who need our love, our care, and our support rather than as problems or difficulties or frustrations? During this this particular climate that we're in right now, there are differences of opinion among brothers and sisters, even within the same body, even within Alfred Allman Bible Church, about what should be happening out there, about what should be happening as far as our political climate is concerned, about who should be voted into office and who should be moved out, about who should be supported in leadership in the government, about the way that we should be handling the the, the social isolation that our government has instructed us uh, to follow. There are differences of opinion on how do we handle that, and we need to be careful that even as we hold those differences of opinion, and we can, we need to be careful that we don't demonize each other 
and treat each other as though we were not brothers and sisters in the same family. The warning here is that if that is our attitude toward other people who claim to be Christians, we might be revealing that we ourselves do not know Jesus. This is a very, very strong warning here that we need to pay attention to. We need to be careful when we find ourselves constantly irritable toward each other. Well, we press on into verse 10 and 11, and we find James giving us another example and keep on hammering on this patience aspect here. Patiently endure suffering like the prophets. Verses 10 and 11, take, uh, he says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So he first points out the reality that the prophets kept speaking even when it hurt. The prophets kept speaking even when it hurt. And we could go to the Old Testament and we could see example after example of this reality. Jeremiah would be the poster boy perhaps for this reality, but James doesn't give us a specific example at at this point. But if you think about the, the, uh, the prophets, many of them spoke God's word to people, the people of Israel, and they were told. So Isaiah, for example, was told explicitly that the people are not going to listen to you. They're going to reject your message. Now, that would be very discouraging for me. If I knew that when I came to Alfred Allman Bible Church, if God told me somehow, and he didn't, and I don't think he would, that the people of Alfred Allman Bible Church are not going to listen to you. They're not going to respect you. They're not going to heed your word. They're not going to follow the word of God. If I were told that, I would be discouraged. In fact, I'd probably run for the hills. I'd pull a jump. But Isaiah remained faithful, even though he knew ahead of time that the people were not going to respond favorably to his preaching. Jeremiah may have had some indication that the people were going to be rebellious and hard-hearted toward his messages, but I don't think he knew ahead of time that he was going to end up imprisoned, impoverished, and heavily persecuted, and ultimately taken off into exile the way that he was. And so the prophets kept on preaching God's word, even though they suffered for it. This is the backdrop to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus pronounces the Beatitudes. The final Beatitude uh, is gives this same comparison that James does. James says here that uh, we consider, in verse 11, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. And I talked a little bit in a devotional this week about the, the meaning of this concept, blessedness. And that's what's going on here. It's this language of blessedness, like in the Beatitudes. James is probably hearkening back to the Beatitudes from Jesus. Blessedness here is based on endurance, not based on circumstances. Now, we remember back, James has mentioned this already earlier in his book, James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So the pronouncing is, The pronouncement is congratulations to the man who remains steadfast under trial. So you look at a man's life and you look at your own life and say, I'm suffering, I'm suffering under some trial. James says, like his brother Jesus said, 
congratulations as you endure the trial. The congratulations is not that you got out of the trial. The congratulations is you're enduring in the midst of the trial. And so the suffering that's coming, we could easily look at the trial that we're in now or the suffering that we've experienced and we could say, that's evidence that God is angry with me. That's evidence that I am not being blessed by God. But that's not what the scriptures teach here. The scriptures teach exactly the opposite. The suffering comes and the blessing comes as we endure. We are to be congratulated when we endure the trial, when we bear up under it and we remain steadfast in our faith. That's when we can see that we are to be congratulated because God is working in us. God is building our faith up. He's purifying our faith, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1. And so that's the picture that's given here. The prophets, people would look back at their lives and their ministry and say, they are to be congratulated because they kept preaching the word. But then when you look at their circumstances, when you look at the opposition they faced, you wouldn't, you wouldn't look at their lives, most of them, and say they were successful, right? Nobody listened to them. People didn't repent when they called them to repent. People didn't trust the Lord when they called people to trust the Lord. That's not very successful. It doesn't seem like they had much influence on the people. And so we would look at their lives, and from a, from a human point standpoint, we would say they're failures. They're not successful. And James says, like Jesus, they are to be congratulated because of their endurance through the suffering. James has one final example to present to us. He says, finally, in verse 11, the second half of verse 11, endure like Job. Endure like Job. Now, this is very interesting. This is the only mention of the man Job in the New Testament. Uh, a couple of places in the New Testament, Job's words are quoted, but Job the man, this is the only time he's mentioned in the New Testament. And it's interesting that he's here held up as an example of endurance. So let's talk about Job's endurance for just a minute. So a couple of weeks ago, as I was thinking about this passage, I sat down and I read through the book of Job in one sitting. It took about an hour and 40 minutes. If you can, I encourage you to try that sometime. Carve out the time to sit alone and read it out loud if you can. That's what I did. And if you're so inclined, you can give different voices to the different characters in the story. Um, but at any rate, reading through the whole book in one sitting was instructive to me because typically when you think about Job, you don't think about him enduring well. If you think about a lot of the things that he said, he seemed to complain. He seemed to lash out in certain ways. Uh, he seemed to be frustrated that God was allowing what God allowed to unfold in his life, even though he never quite charged God with evil or wrong in it all. He does, doesn't seem to be the virtue of patient. I actually think that's part of the point. Now that I've read the story and reflecting on the big picture, I think that's part of the point. James points to Job specifically as an example of steadfastness or endurance because Job endured the suffering in the right way. What does that, what does that mean? Well, Job didn't just passively sit back and resign himself to accept it. Job didn't take the advice of his wife and curse God and die. Instead, Job, Job kept on wrestling with God through it. He wasn't happy about all that he'd lost. 
He wasn't glib about it. He wasn't resigned to it. But he refused, he refused to abandon God because of it. His wife said, curse God and die. He, he did not do that. He refused to do that. And so that he endured when his wife gave him an easy out. Curse God and die. Your suffering will be over. You don't have to worry about it anymore. It'll be done. But secondly, Job endured the counsel of his friends. They kept telling him that the reason this has happened to you is because there's some secret sin in your life. That's the only explanation his friends could come up with. Is bad things happened in your life, you must have sinned somehow to deserve it. Otherwise, this wouldn't be happening because God doesn't work that way. Job refused to accept their explanation. Job endured their constant berating of him. He never gave in to view his suffering from that light. He knew that he was innocent and that whatever the explanation for his suffering, it could not be that. And so Job is an example of endurance because he did not run away from God in his suffering. He ran to God. Yes, he said some very hard things. He complained in certain ways. And yet, the complaining and the wrestling was part of an honest endurance. And I think that's what James is after here, an honest endurance. James is not calling us to endure trials with a smile on our face. He is not calling us to endure trials and say, you know, it's not really that bad. He is not calling us to endure trials in such a way that says, you know, a trial is not really a trial. He pulls Job into the picture because, into our attention, because Job acknowledged the difficulty that he was in all the way through. And yet he kept on going to God. He kept on wrestling with God about it. And I think that's the kind of endurance that we need to have. Going back to the previous point about grumbling and complaining against each other, that's one of the things I've seen in my own experience as a Christian very often people can look at your life and they can see you wrestling with really hard things and they can chastise you for it, chastise you for your sullenness or your difficulty with your lot in life. And they can go to verses like James 1 that says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. And they say, why aren't you doing that? You're being disobedient. You're being rebellious. Without coming alongside and acknowledging the difficulty of it all. James's command there in James chapter 1, count it all joy, doesn't have anything to do with denying the difficulty of the trial. When God takes you through refining fire, it burns. We're not supposed to say, well, I should be laughing through this. It doesn't really hurt. It tickles. No. We should acknowledge that it burns. We should acknowledge that it's hard. We should acknowledge that it stinks really bad. All the while, trusting God to do the good that he's promised to do through these difficulties. Job's endurance is highlighted here. Note the way he says this in verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've heard of that. And you've seen 
the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James points us to something we've heard and something we've seen. And I think he's talking about when you look into the book of Job. So I want to talk about the Lord's purpose in all this. What is the purpose of the Lord that we're supposed to see when we read the story of Job? It is the Lord's purpose that we have to attend to and look for in the story of Job because it is the Lord who draws attention to the man Job. Remember how the book begins? After providing some background on the blamelessness and righteousness of Job, we read about a meeting in heaven, a meeting which Job himself never finds out about. Angelic figures, referred to as the sons of God, meet with Yahweh. Among these angelic figures is one called Satan, whose name means opponent or adversary or accuser. Prior to this meeting, we're told that Satan has been running around all over the world. Why, we are not told. Then we read these words in Job 1.8. And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So for us reading the story, we must view everything that happens after this from that vantage point. Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God, has drawn attention to this man Job. Can we discern why can we perceive reasons why the Lord would draw attention to Job this way, knowing what happens next? The one purpose that we must rule out is that Job suffers because God is punishing him for his sin. That is one way we are to connect ourselves to Job. If we are God's new covenant adopted children, we can know for certain that whatever suffering we experience in this life, it is not because we are being punished for our sins. Job knows this too. But Job himself doesn't know what purposes the Lord has for putting him through this experience. But, his, but readers of his story can pick up some ideas. So when I read the book the other day, I picked up three purposes. Purpose number one to test and refine Job. I noticed this in something Job says, Job 23.10, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. That reminds me of what we read about trials in 1 Peter, where these trials are given to us to refine us, to purify our faith. And Job seems to recognize that that is one thing God was up to. He was being tested. He was being refined. And he was confident that he was going to come out on the other side of the test refined like gold, purified like gold. And so I think we can recognize that that is one of the purposes of the Lord in Job's experience. He was refining him, testing and refining him. Purpose number two, to reveal himself. And we go to the end of the story and we read about the conclusion of the matter. And this is where we can pull some of these purposes from. Job chapter 42, the first six verses. I'm going to dip in and read some of the things that Job says where we find out what Job is understanding from what has happened. 
Then Job answered Yahweh and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job gained a clearer picture of God through his experience of suffering. Job gained a clearer experience of God. And so God used Job's experience as an opportunity to reveal himself to Job more clearly. And ultimately, God revealed himself to us more clearly as well, reading the story all through. Purpose number three was to vindicate Job, to vindicate Job. Job 42, verses 7 and 8. After Yahweh had spoken these words to Job, Yahweh said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So in all that Job said, even as he complained to God about what was going on in certain ways, Yahweh himself says, Job spoke the truth about God, and his friends didn't. You have to be careful when you read the book of Job and you're reading words from the three friends. They say some things that sound really good. They say some things that sound really biblical from other places, but Yahweh himself has heard what they said and he comments on it here and says, what they said is not true. They have not spoken of God correctly. They have not characterized Yahweh properly and they are condemned for it here. And so one of the big purposes, since God is the one who brought Job to Satan's attention, as a blameless and righteous man, taking him through this experience and, and, and seeing him through it as he endured the suffering that he went through. Ultimately, God had a purpose of vindicating Job, that he was a blameless man, that he was a righteous man because of his relationship with God. And that becomes shining at the end of the story here after he goes through it all and he doesn't characterize God wrongly with his words. All three of these purposes, we can be confident the Lord has for us as well. We should endure like Job because God is testing and refining us in all our trials. We should endure like Job because God is revealing himself as very compassionate and merciful through all our trials. That's what James points us to, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That word compassionate is a word that a Greek word that James seems to have made up. He had to make up this word that says God is very compassionate, super, extra, awesome, compassionate, deeply compassionate. James couldn't find a word in the language that he knew that could convey what he wanted to say about the compassion of God, so he made up a word. That's what we're supposed to see from Job's story as well. 
And through our own trials, God will reveal himself as compassionate as he walks with us through our trials and brings us out of them at the proper time and with the proper results. The third purpose as well is for us, we should endure like Job because God will vindicate us. He will publicly reveal for all the universe to see that we were right to trust God through our suffering, to endure the trials of this life for the sake of the eternal life he has promised to those who love him, for the sake of the incomparable weight of glory that he has promised to provide in connection with these light momentary afflictions, and for the sake of the unending and ever-increasing joy we will experience in resurrected bodies and a resurrected world with our resurrected Savior forever and ever. And in verse 12, James turns to talking about our words again. Be truthful in your commitments. That's the point of verse 12, pretty simply. Endure suffering with patience, James has said in verses 7 through 11. Now in verse 12, he shows how patient endurance through trials, through suffering, should impact our speaking, our words. Look at verse 12 again. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Sometimes suffering pushes us to sin. Sometimes suffering pushes us to deception specifically. When a person swears an oath, they are essentially calling God to support the truthfulness of what they're saying. If you do that often enough, it really calls into question the truthfulness of what you say when you don't swear an oath. So in the context of enduring suffering, particularly for Christians suffering oppression by wealthy people, wealthy landowners maybe, if you think about the previous context, verses 1 through 6, James wants us to see what this could what, what could this look like for, for just as an example's sake. Rather than what James is instructing, pa- instructing, patiently awaiting the coming of the Lord to bring justice for them, they might say to a wealthy landowner, I swear by heaven that I will build you a barn to pay my debt. A person might say such a thing because they've been threatened and intimidated by the landowner. James is saying in that in such a, in such a situation, the Christian doesn't need to invoke God to bolster the truth of what he says. Rather, the Christian ought to make straightforward commitments and keep them. Christians ought to be known for their complete honesty without any need for oaths. Oaths lead to condemnation. The implication of an oath in the ancient world was that if you failed to keep your word, so if a Christian failed to build the barn for the wealthy landowner as he had sworn to do, then God could be called upon as an enforcer of the oath. But James is going further. Reflecting Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount yet again, James suggests that even committing yourself like this will lead to condemnation, regardless of whether or not you follow through in keeping your word. Why? Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5.37 that all such swearing comes from the evil one. The problem seems to be that the heart that produces such words is here shown to be generally untruthful, generally deceptive. James's readers might think that swearing an oath could keep them out of trouble with their oppressors. But even if it might, swearing will get them into trouble with God. As God himself says in Revelation 21, 8, 
the portion of all liars will be the lake of fire. Well, as we conclude, we need to think about endurance in the end times. Endurance in the end times. The Apostle John, writing probably about 40 years after James, reveals plainly that the end times, the last days, the final season of human history, had already begun. 1 John 2.18 says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. The final season of human history has lasted quite a while. By our human reckoning, but the constant call for all followers of Jesus living in the end times is endurance. Endurance is repeatedly called for when the return of Jesus is discussed in the scriptures. Endurance uh, is what is needed. John steps out of describing his apocalyptic visions in the book of Revelation on two occasions to address his readers and summon them to endure. Revelation 13.10 says, Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Similarly, Revelation 14.12 says, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Or consider Jesus' Olivet Discourse, his teaching on the Mount of Olives a few days before he died. Jesus' primary purpose in telling his disciples these things is to call them to endure and to warn them about dangers that could threaten to lead them away from their faith in him. At the heart of the discourse is the statement recorded in Mark 13, 13, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But it's Jesus's repeated commands that carry the main point of the teaching for his original disciples and for us. Consider these verses from Mark 13. Verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. Verse 7, do not be alarmed. Verse 9, but be on your guard. Verse 11, do not be anxious beforehand. Verse 23, but be on guard. Verse 33, be on guard. Verse 33, keep awake. Verse 35, therefore stay awake. Verse 37, stay awake. After this, Jesus tells the parable of the ten virgins, and the point of that parable appears in Matthew 25, 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The nearness of the Lord's arrival doesn't mean we can predict the date. We absolutely cannot. So how should we be patiently waiting for the Lord's arrival? What does endurance in the end times look like? It looks like the readiness of a homeowner who has set the security system to prevent thieves from breaking in and stealing. It looks like the faithful concern of the steward of a household who makes sure all the children are well fed. It looks like the faithful obedience of the two servants in Jesus' parable of the talents, the two servants who made a profit with the money their master had entrusted to them. It looks like the steady, ordinary work of providing the needs of our brothers and sisters, as depicted in the parable of the separation of the sheep and the goats on Judgment Day. None of this is passive waiting, simply sitting back, kicking up one's feet and relaxing, Rather, patiently waiting for the Lord's arrival involves a diligent pursuit of our Lord's concerns and a rigorous rejection of all that displeases him. 
As we wait with eager anticipation for our Lord's arrival, let us seek to be busy about his business. And all the while, let's pray as the Spirit-empowered, Spirit-sanctified Bride of Christ is supposed to pray. According to Revelation twenty-two seventeen, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let's join the Apostle John three verses later. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's join the Apostle Paul and pray in Aramaic as recorded in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Maranatha, come, Lord. Simply going to close with a benediction prayer from Romans 15, 5 and 6 in the NIV. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go in peace and wait well, brothers and sisters.